Good morning, guys. Hey, can we give it up for Morgan? That was 25 verses. She killed it. What commitment. Well, hey, guys, it's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm one of our college pastors here. I have the privilege of loving and leading Salt St. Paul. So we love our crew. So excited to be with you this morning. So we're going to be in the book of John. So if you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to take it out. It's about 80% of the way through your Bible. And this morning, we're going to be zoning in on two stories from John chapter 2. As you turn there, I don't know about you guys, but I love a good paradox, okay? They're delightful. They're a great time. A paradox is a sentence with two opposing, seemingly opposing statements that actually reveal something deeper within it. A couple paradoxes that I love. This first one is on every wall of every Silicon Valley startup, and that is the more you fail, the more likely you are to succeed. Ooh, delightful. Statistically, that's actually literally not true. Likelihood is a percentage. Okay, moving on. Next one, you guys have heard this one when you were little and it made sense, but it doesn't, doesn't now. The more you learn, the less you know. And you're like, what? What does that mean? Last one that gets me consistently is when you see a sale so good that you're like, I can't afford not to buy this. You've been there. What I open with this idea of paradox is I open this way because this morning we're going to be talking about the paradox of Jesus. As we look into John chapter 2, here's what we're going to find in John chapter 2 and through every chapter of the book of John, that Jesus consistently does the opposite thing of what you'd expect him to do. People ask him questions, and then his answers are always like this, you know, like he's never consistent. He's always doing the opposite thing of what you'd expect him to do, seemingly contradictory things. And in Jesus, what we find in the book of John is multiple competing realities colliding within one person, grace and truth, mercy and authority chill Jesus, as we're about to find at the wedding, and righteously angry Jesus. Time and time again, we see multiple different seemingly competing realities collide together in the person of Christ, and there is no better example than the book of John, and specifically chapter 2. This morning, we're going to be studying two separate stories of Jesus that seem seemingly contradictory. The first one is of Jesus at the wedding, and the second one is of Jesus at the temple. And before we even jump in, I just want to say there's a beauty of teaching the book of John verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and that's because many Christians and many churches will tend to love one of those two realities of Jesus. They love the chill Jesus who's sitting at the party, got like a lot of wine at that party, it's a good time. They love the merciful Christ, or they love the authority of Jesus, the making of the whips and the threshing of the temple floor. But what we're going to see in this chapter is that those seemingly contradictory stories reveal a deeper truth about who Christ is, and that is the beauty of his kingship, his saviorship, and his lordship in our life. Okay, open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 2. Here's where we're going this morning. My big idea is that you cannot put Jesus in a box, okay? We want to box him up, can't do it. Two parts. He throws parties, and he throws tables. Look with me to verse 1. That... That wasn't meant to be funny, but now I see it is. Okay, it's a little late for that. (laughs) Let's start with he throws parties. Oh, man. He actually flips tables, but anyways, moving on. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Okay, a couple unexpected things already that we find in the setting. The first thing is Jesus is God and he's at a wedding. Now, weddings at this time, these were parties, guys, okay? People waited their entire life to party hard at the wedding. So here we find a pretty odd reality that the God-man himself would be found at a party surrounded with wine. Now, some people are like, no, it was grape juice. It wasn't, okay? It was straight up wine. It just is. Anyone who says it was grape juice is like reading into the Bible. It just is wine. So here we find Jesus in this unusual circumstance. One of the first things we see him do in ministry is show up to a party. Kind of odd. But moving on. Then the mother goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they have no wine. That is also a little bit odd because Jesus is not the host of this party. He's not the bridegroom. He's not the master of the ceremony. It'd be like if you went to a wedding and people were like, the bathroom's out of toilet paper. You'd be like, I just, not my problem. Okay, that's the situation that we find Jesus in. Why are they going to Jesus? Okay. And then the next thing we see is that he opens up his statement with the word that no one likes to read, which is woman. Okay, so a lot of controversy on this. Does this mean that Jesus hates women? No, no, it doesn't. Relax, everyone needs to chill out, okay? The original Hebrew of the word woman in this section section is lady, okay? It's It's an honorable term. Still kind of odd that he calls his mom lady instead of mom, I understand. Don't have answers for you why he did that. Moving on. And then she says, can you make something happen to the wine? And what he says next is, a really odd response. Instead of just being like a normal person and saying yes or no, what does he say? My hour has not yet come. Okay, here's a biblical hermeneutic, which basically just means how to read the Bible. If you read the gospel accounts time and time again, Jesus never responds to the question, okay? He's like that really infuriating friend where you're like, no, I just just wanna know if I need to take a right. And they're like, oh, what's right or wrong? Like, it's just, it's too much. It's too deep. You're just like, give me instructions, okay? That's what Jesus is like. She's like, they ran out of wine. He's like, my hour has not come. And she's like, okay, that's the situation. (laughs) So what does this mean? Why is Jesus saying his hour had not yet come? What Jesus is referring to is the hour of his death. What we find even in John chapter two is that Jesus understands that he has to die for the sins of the world. And so he knows that his hour has not yet come. The reason why he's saying that to his mom is because if he kind of, you know, starts doing what he's about to do, starts revealing his glory, the time clock would start on Jesus. It would be the beginning of the end of his ministry. That's why he's saying, my hour has not yet come. And then in classic, I don't know why it's written like this, but then his mom's like, do whatever he tells you to do. So she just like bypasses all that. She's like, I don't know what you're saying, but we gotta get some more wine. So here we go, the verse six. Verse six says this. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, which is, they were tipsy, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, a couple things I wanna note here. As a modern audience, we fail to understand why running out of wine is a big deal, okay? It's for sure a bummer, but like BYOB, like figure it out. It's not that big of a deal. So why is this the first miracle that God chooses to reveal himself in? Seems like a seemingly small incident. Why is this such a big deal? 
There's a couple levels of culture that we need to understand to understand why this was such a big deal. The first one is weddings were like the pinnacle of your life, okay? Weddings are expensive now, like so expensive. Like if you're planning a wedding, they're like all your money. But back then, it was more than just price. It was also how that culture would remember you. So how great your wedding was, man, we love you. If your wedding sucked, we didn't like you. Does that make sense? So in this situation, what's likely true is that the bridegroom was probably a little bit poorer, so he couldn't afford to buy enough wine to have an abundance, so he bought just enough, hoping that they'd have enough to get through the wedding, but they didn't. What Jesus was covering this bridegroom from was a lifetime of shame. If he would have been unable to provide enough wine for his wedding, then he would have worn a scarlet A around his community for the rest of his life, a tight-knit Jewish community who would have never let him let Lever let him live down the honor-shame reality of this moment. So on this, in this moment, everything was riding for this bridegroom, his shame, his future, his reality, and everything. So Jesus uses his power to come through for the bridegroom. But here's why I love the Bible. It is a historical narrative, so it shares details with you that seem seemingly inconsequential but are actually really cool. Jesus comes through with 150 gallons of wine. Just think about that. That's like over 3,000 glasses. What is this, Coachella? Like, I'm like, how many people are at this wedding? Like, you gotta think about this. It, probably one of those vats would have been plenty for the people there. And yet what Jesus does is he comes through abundantly for this bridegroom. And it's like good wine. Like, I love that detail because it's like somehow aged even though it's only in a moment. Like, I don't know how this works, but it was the good stuff. He comes through with the good stuff, and what does the master of the ceremony says? He says, in an average wedding, you get the good stuff first and the bad stuff second. In this wedding, you save the best stuff for last. Here's what happened in this story that I think as you read between the lines, it reveals the beauty and mercy of Christ. In one miracle, from water to wine, what Jesus does for this bridegroom is he takes away his shame and gives him honor. And at no point in this miracle does Jesus get the glory, only the bridegroom receives the glory. Okay, this is not just a story about Jesus turning water into wine. This is supposed to teach us a couple of things. So the question for us this morning is what does this teach us here? The first thing is the point of the story is not the miracle, it's the mercy. You gotta understand this. Jesus did not just turn water into wine purely to have more wine at the wedding. He did it to show the mercy of himself to the bridegroom. Listen, this is the experience of following Jesus. You have nothing to give him. You are full of your shame, your inadequacy, and your weakness. And what does he do for you? He gives you honor and righteousness in his name. Not in your name, but in his. This is the experience of mercy, undeserved grace, and undeserved favor. Okay, second thing we need to learn from this story is think about the humility of Christ. Guys, this is Jesus' first miracle, right? Like, this is his entree, or what is it, when you start something? Entrance? Entrance, not entree. I'm hungry. Okay, it's, I'm actually not hungry. It's fine. It's 10 a.m. This is Jesus' entrance onto the scene. So you got to imagine, why not come out with, like, the free food for 20,000 people? Why not raise the dead or heal the blind? Why start with this miracle? Because I think in this miracle, we see the radical humility of Christ. I want you to think about this. The master of ceremony didn't know about Jesus' miracle. 
The bridegroom even, the one who received the honor and righteousness, did not know about Jesus' miracle. The wedding guests and the the wedding party did not know about Jesus' miracle. The only people who knew about the miracle of water to wine in this moment was the servants, his disciples, and his own mother. The humility of Christ in his first miracle on the scene to start with a miracle like this. Okay, last thing I want us to see in this text is that it cost him something. I think maybe this is the most under, like, misunderstood part of this story. When Jesus turned water to wine, it says in verse 11 that it began to reveal his glory to the world. He understood that it was gonna put him on a clock. Three years from now, his public ministry would end and his crucifixion would start. So in order to give honor and glory to the bridegroom, he began to click his own talk, clock of death. Okay, so as I was thinking about the ways that Jesus has been merciful to me, I was prepping my sermon on Friday, and I just began to think about just miracles in my life. And one of those was um, this moment when I was 21 years old. My, my dad and I have always had a very tumultuous relationship. He was verbally and physically abusive growing up, really, really hard story. And I remember when I was 21, I was my first year on staff here at Redemption Church, and um, I just told Jesus, like, man, Jesus, I will do anything for you except forgive my dad, which as a heads up, if you say stuff like that to Jesus, you're going to get wrecked. Just don't do it. It's not, it's bad wisdom. But I remember just thinking to myself, man, there's no way I can actually forgive my dad for what he's done to me. And so I remember we were, I was praying, walking in this, you know, parking lot, whatever, talking to Jesus, whatever, and I just felt this unbelievable mercy of Jesus pour out onto my life where he had given me a unique courage for that time to call my dad and to actually forgive him. And as I look back on that time, I'm like, man, that, that was like an actual miracle in my life. Like that was a truly, I never thought that would actually happen, but by the mercy and grace of Jesus, he came through for me. He turned water into wine in my life. I don't know what that could be for you, but I assume there are some of us in this room that are really discouraged about a component of our life that genuinely feels like nothing could ever be done by it, but the power of Jesus is water to wine. Okay, so three different application points for this part of the sermon. The first one is to ask Jesus to come through. Okay, we believe this, that he still comes through for us. Like we actually believe as Christians that the spirit of God is within us, that the son of man has died and resurrected again and therefore has the power to not just make water into wine, but to transform our lives, which means that there's no sin that he cannot release you from, no shame that he cannot heal, no relationship that he cannot mend. Jesus Christ can come through for you. So it is actually true that when we read chapters like this, we are to ask him to do miracles in our life. But it is also true, which is my second application, that we do not end up falling more in love with the miracles than the mercy. See, I think there's a temptation in some kind of Christian camps to get so enamored with the miracles of Christ that we forget about the man of Christ. We start seeking the spiritual gifts or the miracles in our lives more than the mercy of Christ himself. Listen, I think it's really important as a church family that we ask Jesus to do miracles in our life, but ultimately the miracles are but a sign of the mercy of Christ. They would worship him for all of our days. And the last one is to have fun with Jesus. Okay, I know this one's less spiritual, but, but stay with me, okay? 
have fun with Jesus. Guys, if you never have fun with Jesus, like what religion are you following? Like I'm just, this is important. I want you to think about this. This, is, this got me laughing. Guys, John the Baptist, think about John the Baptist. Drew kind of explained this last week. First of all, he didn't drink at all, which is hilarious in context. He ate locusts and honey and probably smelled a little bit bad. Like that was probably the reality for John B., okay? There were disciples, not John B. from Outer Banks. You guys understand what I'm saying. John the Baptist. I said that in our service. Anyways, John the Baptist. There were actual disciples that were following John the Baptist. Meet Jesus. Start following him. Think about that change. No drinking to 3,000 glasses of wine at a party. Like that, that's a crazy change. Jesus is actually meant to be fun to follow. Now, I'm not saying that everything in life is going to be fun. It's not. But Jesus actually likes having fun because he created fun. And as you read through the gospel accounts, he's like probably a really fun guy to hang out with. Like that's actually true. Now, as a college pastor, I do have to say this. I know this is a sermon about wine, underage drinking, and drunkenness is debauchery. So I I just want to clarify that. But literally, like, have fun with Jesus. Okay, so don't, don't take this and apply it in weird ways. It's just have fun with Jesus. So that's our third point of application, is that we should have fun with Jesus because Jesus is fun. That's actually true. So at times, this is the experience of following Jesus. It's like being at the wedding feast with Jesus. It's sitting back, being his disciples, and watching him do incredible things, both in your life and other people's life. It's seeing the miracles of Jesus. It's seeing the mercy of Jesus. It's having fun with Jesus and kicking it back and drinking some wine. That's what it's like to follow Jesus at times. But also what it's like is to follow Jesus, is to experience Jesus at the temple. So what we're about to experience is maybe the most polar, like in one sermon, we're going to go like, oh, that's what it's going to feel like. It's going to be an intense turn because we're gonna see the authority of Christ at the temple and we're gonna see that at times it's like following Jesus at the wedding and at times it's like following him at the temple. Look with me to verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, and when... Therefore, he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so immediately, the tone of this chunk of scripture is really, really different. This is the infamous setting of Jesus threshing the temple floor with a whip made out of cords. Now, again, to a modern audience, this is just weird. We're like, okay, why is Jesus doing this? Like, for us, when we read this, it's like, it's like a farmer's market, Minnesota State Fair, like, can you imagine Jesus? No, that'd be an odd experience. So why is Jesus showing up to the temple with righteous anger? There's a couple levels of dishonoring realities that are happening at the temple that I think can actually draw us in and make us question the way that we tend to commercialize Christ. In the temple, 
every Jew would go and pay a temple tax. It was two days wages, so let's just call it $300, or about 2.2 million Jews that would sojourn here. So that's a lot of money. And so what people would do is they would set up these money currency exchanges outside of the temple or within the outer realm of the temple and would actually upcharge Jews a considerable amount of money. As the Jews were coming in to pay their tithes to God, they were using that money for their own gain. That's dishonoring number one. Dishonoring number two is that they were using the animals that the Jews would sacrifice to God and upcharging them as well. But maybe the most brutal part of what was happening here, which is why Jesus was so angry, is not just what was being done, but where it was being done. It was being done in the temple of God. But I want you to understand this. It was being done in the outer realm of the temple. Now, the reason why this is so important is because the way the temple was built, it'd be like outer realm, inner realm, and the holy of holies, okay? Gentiles were not allowed to go past the outer realm. So what was happening was Gentile believers who believed in Yahweh, the one true God, would travel hundreds if not thousands of miles to get to this temple, only to get to the temple where there'd be so much commotion and commercialization of religion happening that they could not worship God. So Jesus goes to this place with a righteous anger, with a whip in his hand, and begins to chase people out because the actual place that was meant to be a place of worship to God became a place of thievery and injustice. And then the Jews ask him, what on earth are you doing? What, by what authority are you doing these things? And then Jesus, in classic Jesus fashion, does not answer the question. <laughs> He's like, you break this temple down, I'll raise it up in three days. It's such a confusing answer. But basically, the Jews are saying, who are you? How can you be doing these things in the temple? What are you doing? And what Jesus was trying to answer is that this temple is my father's house. This is actually my home and you're making my home into a place of thievery and injustice. And the reason why it's my home is because I have power over death itself. What Jesus was prophesying about was the reality that one day he, the final temple of God, would be broken down by their hands and he would raise himself up after three days. He would conquer death itself. It was his divinity that would conquer death and conquer sin. And so his answer to them was saying, if you want to know who I am, know that you could break this temple down and you will break this temple down, but I will raise it up in three days. Okay, so what do we need to learn from this story? What do we need to learn from the threshing of the temple floor? The first thing is, sometimes following Jesus feels like the wedding feast and sometimes it feels like the temple. Okay, this is really important, especially as a college pastor. I hear this all the time. There's a temptation to message Jesus primarily as Jesus at the wedding feast and never talk about Jesus at the temple. And what happens is the second that Jesus begins to turn tables in your life, you walk away. So I think in particular college students, I want you to hear this, Jesus Christ will flip tables in your life. And he's doing that because he wants to make you holy. Sometimes following Jesus is like that of the party. Sometimes following Jesus is that of the temple. The second thing I want us to learn from this is that he often flips tables without our permission. I want you to understand a detail in this text that we kind of skimmed over that I want us to draw into. Jesus Christ did not ask permission before he made his court of whips. He did not go into the temple and say, hey, listen, I'm God, listen to me. 
What he did was he went into the temple, saw the debauchery of the temple, the dishonoring nature of the temple, and he took out his cord of whips. Why does he do that? Because it's his house. If you are in Christ, here's what's true about your life. You are the new temple, the final resting place of God. You are what heaven and earth meet. It is in you, which means here's what's true. You no longer own your house. Jesus does. So at times, he will come into your life very often without permission, and he will start flipping tables in your heart. And at times, what we do as Christians is we say, Jesus, yeah, but like, give me an explanation, right? You're like, okay, I want you to explain why, what did I do wrong? Like, you're just kind of like, give me the whole thing. For us as Christians, our job is not to explain away why God is flipping tables in our life. It is to be obedient even when we don't understand. So the truth of the matter is Jesus Christ does not need your permission to come into your life and flip your tables because he owns the temple of God. It is his house in your life. And the last thing that I want us to see here is that he will make his house holy. Okay, I think this matters personally and corporately. Okay, personally, I want to ask the question, how do we tend to use God for our gain? Okay, I don't know exactly what this would be for you, but maybe for us, we, some of us, we use Christianity for community. Like, we're like, we do love Jesus, but really it's because we just want friends. Some of us, we go to church because we want a spouse. Some of us, we, we have a temptation to use Jesus to just make us feel better. In other words, he's like our self-help genie. All of us have a temptation to use Jesus for our own gain, and the question for us is, how do we do that, and how can we fight that? Because if we continue to do that, Jesus will flip tables in our life. The second thing is corporately. Okay. This passage teaches us that Jesus hates the commercialization of religion. Brand-based Christianity is abhorrent to God. And as we look out into the wide evangelical church, and even within our church, we have to become weary of this, that no church, no Christian group, no ministry becomes about one person but only becomes about Christ. The idea of branding oneself in order to gain a following in our modern culture is very common, but it is abhorrent to Christ. So even as we enter into our building, Redemption Church, we have seen some incredible things that God has done here. He has been unbelievably gracious to us, but may it be far from us if we receive any pride for that. And let us be quick to see that Jesus will flip tables if he sees that. Okay, so here's some kind of application questions that I've got for us. What tables is he overthrowing in your life right now, okay? I don't know what it is, but I'm just assuming for all of us, we have tables that he's consistently overthrowing, and it's, it's very unforeseen at times, but he does it. What are some tables that he's overseeing, overthrowing in your life right now? Second thing is, in what ways do you need to repent of commercializing Christ, of using Christianity for your own gain and using it for your own social structures? And third one is, how do you need to rethink the multidimensionality of Christ? Because I just think that all of us are either really heavy into the Jesus in the wedding or Jesus in the temple. But I think what we need is a complex, nuanced, textured view of Christ to understand that at times following Jesus is like that of the wedding and at times following Jesus is that of the temple. As I was kind of thinking about what God was doing in my heart doing during this time, I just thought about, man, how God often turns tables in our lives so that we can see clearly, okay? I don't know about you guys, but it's like, man, 
Occasionally, I just need him to flip some tables in my life. Like, that's just what it feels like. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm blind. I need it. I need it. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I, uh, this was before kickoff, it's a busy season, all this kind of stuff, and we got in a fight because I'm an idiot. So here's what was happening. There was like all these like dishes and things that needed to be done, and I was like, no, I'm not going to do them because I'm busy. How lame. So that was part one. Part two is I'm just like blind. I can't see those things. I'm like, oh, dishes, they'll eventually get done. But then who they would get done what would be her. So I lost the fight. I lost the fight. It was horrible. I've been repenting ever since. We have a chore list. It's great. Okay. That's been the application. She writes me a chore list every Sunday night, and I do it like a good boy. So that's, what, that's the situation. She's great. But here's, here's what Jesus was doing in my heart during that time. It was more about the dishes, more than the dishes. Some of you guys you're married, you understand this. It's never about the dishes. It's always about other things. It was far more about the dishes to me. What Jesus revealed to me is that I was prioritizing my life, my desires, salt company over my wife, and so he began to flip tables in my heart. This is what's true of Christ. Sometimes we don't even see it. Sometimes we just think it's like something that can be done later. But in reality, what's happening in our hearts is that he's flipping tables so that we can see clearly again. Listen, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I can assume right now that if you were to think about it pretty deeply, you would see ways that Jesus is flipping tables in your life, changing your future plans, changing your desires, changing the way that you need to die to yourself. Jesus is constantly flipping tables, and he's doing that so we can see clearly and so that we can be holy. Okay, as we kind of talk through these different things, the question that should be coming up in your mind is, how do these two things collide, okay? These feel like really paradoxical realities, right? One is Jesus at the wedding, merciful, hashtag chill Jesus, drinking some wine, great. The other one is he's coming into the temple without any sign and you're just like whipping animals. Like what's happening? How do these two things come together to one reality within Christ? And I think the answer is actually at the end of John chapter two. I was really excited to learn about this where it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to him because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about the man for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, so what holds the glue together between merciful Jesus at the wedding, between authoritative Jesus at the temple is his omniscience. It's the reality that he knows everything about everyone and in the hearts of every single person. Okay, why does this help us? It helps us because at times he knows that we feel inadequate, that we are full of shame, that in our weakness what we need is Jesus to honor, to give us honor and give us glory. <laughs> glory was the wrong word there, but you know, we need him. We need him to come through for us. That's our heart condition. But at other times what we see is in our pride, in our blindness to our sin, in our temptation to commercialize Christ or to value other things above him, he needs to break down our idols by flipping tables. So the truth is the omniscience of Christ is actually what holds this chapter together and I would argue holds the entire gospel narrative together. It is the fact that he knows exactly what is in our hearts, sometimes shame and sin, mercy and authority. We see all of it that he's trying to do. And so as you read the gospel narratives, as you read through the book of John, as Drew recommended a couple weeks ago, my encouragement is for you to read the gospel of John through the lens of Jesus' omniscience, that at times he's merciful, at times he's authoritative, at times he's the wedding, at times he's the temple. Okay. As we close our time together, uh, I just want to 
end our time together by showing you that the most paradoxical moment of Jesus' ministry was not the wedding nor the temple, but it was the cross. And here's what I mean by that. The idea that God himself would look at a sinful people and die on their behalf is maybe the most paradoxical thing ever. Who would do that except God? See, I love the wedding feast story because it shows us the gospel. I mean, this is just inherently the gospel. The bridegroom was full of shame, full of inadequacy, full of weakness. He had nothing to give to Jesus, and yet Jesus, in his humility, would pay a cost so that that bridegroom could receive honor. That it is with us. Guys, think about the, the cross. That's just like the wedding feast times a million, okay? We're, we're pumped about Jesus turning water to wine. We are far more pumped about Jesus turning dead people to life. We're so much more excited about sinners who needed the grace of God. And so for Jesus to pay the ultimate cost for us is like Jesus would pay the cost for the bridegroom. This is a perfect representation of the gospel. So that's salvation. But what we will also see is because of the cross, we now are the temple of God. We are the resting place of God. And through that, he will actually work in our hearts by flipping tables to make us more holy like him. There we see sanctification. So what we see in John chapter 2 is both the salvation of water to wine and the sanctification of flipping tables. We see both those things in tandem, which is the experience of following Jesus, all made possible because of the crucifixion of Christ. Let me pray that we would have lives reflected of that. Father, I'm so thankful for this chapter that shows the paradox of your character and your mercy and your kindness, that at times it is that of the wedding feast, of the bridegroom who is full of shame, inadequacy, and weakness, and yet you bestow your mercy upon the bridegroom. And at times following you, Jesus, is like the temple where you come into our lives and without permission you start flipping tables because we are now the temple of God. So, Father, here's what I would pray that you would do something miraculous within our hearts this week and you would show us the ways that like the bridegroom, we're receiving the honor you deserve, the grace that you chose to give, and the mercy and kindness of your character, and you would show us the areas in our life that you're flipping tables. Father, would you show us both your mercy and authority, your grace and truth? Would you show us every bit of who you are so that we can become enamored with you? Father, may we be at Redemption Church, a balanced church who sees the paradox of Christ and falls on our knees to worship you day by day. Thank you, Jesus, for the grace of the gospel. In your name we pray, amen.